You're listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. You'll hear from PropTech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. In each episode, you'll hear about the market opportunities and trends driving the industry forward. TechNest is proudly produced by Finn Ledger in partnership with HW Media. And now your host, Nate Smoyer. All right, we got a great episode here for you. I've got Josh Frazier, the CEO of a company called Estated. We're talking all things data. So Estated is one of those companies that has taken on this massive challenge of mapping U.S. property data and making it accessible for other companies in other industries. So you can think like insurance, mortgage and lending, real estate, utilities, marketing, home services, all these companies that wanna really build seamless and integrated experiences. They leverage companies like Estated to be able to deliver those experiences. One in fact happens to be Obi, uh, where you'll hear that name dropped multiple times in this episode amongst other things. We get into the future of what housing might look like, what data is enabling for, and even unexpectedly talk about what renting might look like in the landscape and the dramatic shifts coming to the industry and the data that points to we really are headed for a renter's economy and not so much as a owner's economy. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Hey, Josh, welcome to the show. Hey Nate, how's it going today? Uh, I'm doing well. I left my dog uh, way outside of my office because he'll only last five minutes. And then you also, I see that you kicked your dog away, but I'm a little bummed about that. I want to bring the golden dude back into view. He'll probably show up at some point. <laughs> he he makes the random appearances throughout the day. Yeah. Well, hey, uh, I appreciate your time here. Uh, excited for the topic. We're going to talk a little bit about data, probably a whole bunch of stuff that I technically can't really explain and hoping that we can get into the details. Before we do that, as always, please go ahead and introduce yourself, let everyone know who you are and what you do. My name is Josh Fraser. I'm the CEO at Estated. I've been doing this for about seven years now. The first product that I originally came up with was a Carfax for Homes, which provided public record data and a search option online, similar to Zillow, but more focused on the off-market side of things, which led to us building Estated, which is a nationwide property data provider. We have about 200 fields on a little over 155 million properties now that's getting updated on a daily and weekly basis across the entire United States. And we kind of service the sectors in fintech, financials, insurance, home insurance, PNC, and then a lot of real estate tech and prop tech. And so that's why we're here today. Talk about some prop tech. I love it. And I want to give a plug real quick. You know, for everyone who's like, okay, but I don't have a need for enterprise data solutions. You should still subscribe to the estated newsletter. It's actually, it's one of mm. my favorite newsletters. You get a good sense of what's happening in prop tech and in, you know, like funding or who's expanding with partners or some hot takes on businesses. And I don't know who you have writing that, but I greatly appreciate it. And I have to give it a top of the show shout out. I appreciate that. Uh, I worked on it for about two years doing it myself. And I'd say in December, January, I finally let someone else take it over. And I would, it's actually gotten quite a bit better and prettier. But we do cover all the funding rounds. And I'm like you're aware of last year, there were $35 billion deployed to prop tech companies and venture capital. And it's growing this year. I think we're already at a faster pace um, after Q1 of 2022 here. So it's, uh, it's a never ending thing. I feel like our newsletters, our headline is so many characters, but it's like, <laughs> we could probably show one here, but it, you know, there's, there's 10 rounds a week. And then we also do our funding Fridays, which we've been kind of playing around with YouTube and also just doing it in copy on the, on the website. But we cover all the rounds that you're going to see in PropTech and it's hundreds of millions a week right now. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll have to connect more on that. I have some I have some data that we have to get over to you. I want to get into a stated here. Let's get into the product. Uh, there are lots of problems that a stated is used for to solve, but then you know you're solving business pains. So maybe you can talk through uh, big picture. What are the problems that a stated has identified that it's best situated to solve for? 
Yeah, so our primary use case is we can provide mass amounts of data for modeling when you have a PNC insurance portfolio. So a company like State Farm would come to us for two different reasons. One, they want to know the value of the portfolio that they're currently insuring. And then they also want to prepare the underwriting and make sure that they have as much information as they possibly can. So State is not the single source that they come to. They probably use thousands of sources to model around what the replacement cost of a home is and then what the value of the entire portfolio is. The other side of it that you can, it can be used for is the pre-fill information for the user experience. So when you go in to sign up for a new policy or renew your policy and you type in your address, we can pre-fill all the structural fields about the house, confirm that you're the owner, add in some historical deed or sales price in there. And all that can happen in the blink of an eye or a millisecond through APIs. And it's just so much faster. So anytime you see those pre-fills on really any sort of insurance website or user interface, that's where Stated can add a lot of value because it speeds it up. A lot of the legacy technology companies that provide public record property data, their APIs take seconds to give you a response. And so in the world of user experience that we live in now, especially if you're doing like with Hippo or Lemonade and you're doing a policy on your phone, they want that to be, you know, we have very short attention spans now. That needs to be lightning fast. And so the APIs have to be able to keep up with that demand. But I'd say there's, that's, it is very similar on the mortgage side of things. And, and that's really where we're able to provide the most value. Okay. And maybe backtrack just a little bit. What is the, what's the journey that takes you into starting something like this? Because, you know, this is, this is, you're, you're pairing together. Right, you're having to understand what's behind the curtain, and you have to understand how these businesses operate to even know what they need behind the curtain. How did you find yourself in this vein? Yeah, it's incredibly boring to be honest. It's public record data. It's like what you go to your city and you have to ask for kind of like an MLS report on a house. But when you look at that at a really grand scale, you know, at a fairly young age, I realized that data was king. And I look at the world we're going into now, especially with like Web three and blockchain. Data really is the underlying solution for so many different applications that we use every single day. And so I used to do digital advertising with AdWords. That's really kind of my baby, which is all a data play at the end of the day. I got really good at Google AdWords, which led to building the Carfax for Homes, which is another data play. And it just kept growing. So at first we were selling 20 and $50 reports for this Carfax for a house with all the historical public record data. But then we were going and pulling it from all these different sources. And then we realized that the sources we get it from are really big companies, CoreLogic, Black Knight, First American, VeraRisk. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. These are huge publicly traded companies, Pitney Bowes, that have been around for a long, long time. And we were buying data from them and they're just not that great to work with. They really are these massive organizations that were started hundreds of years ago, a couple of them. And it's 2022, like technology's at a whole different level than some of the products that they offer nowadays. And so what we've done is we've really taken those older legacy data sets that get updated. They have amazing relationships with the counties across the United States, like built-in relationships. That's very hard for us to go and get on our own, even though it is public data at the end of the day. But we've really just made it very accessible to get into that data. And I just became fascinated with it. You know, investing in real estate is what like originally made me a millionaire, which was super exciting. Um, and I still invest in real estate today. I'll probably invest in real estate for the rest of my life. I just have way more data than everyone. And so I've always been really passionate about real estate and data. And luckily somehow it got to here. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a, it's a fascinating way around it. I, I, I would like to know when you were doing the Carfax for homes, did you have an animal other than the fox as a, a mascot? Did you pick a, a mascot? We... <laughs> We called it U.S. Realty Records, and no, we had no animals involved. I do remember there was one with like an alligator, and I, I turned it down pretty quick when the design team came to me with it because we were testing out brands. Um, and, but yeah, you know, it was interesting. I it could just see it, like, you know, download complete, and then it says, see you later, gator, right? You know? <laughs> Yeah, it was like Maybe it was like nice. Gator Facts or something. <laughs> like we really tried to copy oh, it. Man. And it just like it was really cheesy. But you know, it just it taught us a lot. We were like, hey, there's a lot of demand for this off-market lookup where so you don't have to go to your public recorder or county recorder office. Yeah. We started meeting real estate investors and other brokers and stuff that were lurking looking up thousands of properties a month. And then they were like, Why don't you guys have an API? And we're like, Oh, well, that'd be a really smart idea. Mm. And so it was like kind of 2016, 17. 
we went to Techstars and we kind of fleshed this idea out of like, could we be a nationwide data provider instead of just this like one-off Carfax for homes? And um, that kind of led to a stated, and we've been growing since we really got a product in market, we've doubled every single year. We're on the path to double again this year too. Wow. We've only raised a small round of capital. We're a really small team. And the other thing with the tech that we build available with these data sets is like the legacy companies have thousands of employees. We have like 20. Wow. It's just dramatically different what you can do with technology now. So why, why are you able to do what you're able to do with only 20 employees while these other companies need a thousand? Like there must be some sort of differentiator here that has enabled you guys to build what you have so far. They truly have boots on the ground in certain places in America going to like, you know, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City public recorder office or county recorder office and pulling in like PDFs of data, documenting them into the like of deeds of actual deeds and transactions on homes and the latest tax assessments. And so we they need thousands of employees for that. We just buy that data from them. Some of it is already done digitally. If you go to Miami or LA, you can just download it right online. We could do it in the next couple minutes if we wanted to. But when you get into rural America, mm -hmm. not the same. Their tech is old. It's archaic. Got to be documented. OCR. Welcome sometimes. to my world. Yeah, it gets messy, you know? And so that's why we still have to work with them and why when we originally tried to collect recorder data, we had a lot of gaps on a nationwide file. That's the other thing we've done very differently is we're trying to open the kimono and open the black box on it. A lot of the legacy competitors don't even want us to. They don't want people to know what the quality of the data is. I'm not even sure they know. Well, I mean, it, it, I, I imagine if, if you're the only one with the key to the back room, then you charge whatever you want for that. And the moment that back room has a little bit more open access, that, well, that can disrupt certain models or certain businesses so I, I can see why maybe some incumbents might might not be super stoked uh they're definitely not all this they're, a little bit easier to get to we're getting into like our fourth year in business with the stated and it's still relatively small i'd say the first two years we were very much experimenting we still had the carfax for homes running we were like this is a great business but it's not ever going to get big enough to what we think it could be this b2b side enterprise looks a lot bigger let's focus on that so the first like 2017, mm -hmm. 2018 were just ideas. 2019, we actually started investing in it. And so got it. It's it's getting there now. Now did you start from like did you start from like one city or a few cities and then branch out from there? Like what's you know, because obviously starting immediately nationwide doesn't to me sounds like that would be the hardest way to do it. I would start by biggest cities first where there's already established demand or the most demand for and then branch out from there. So like what's that? journey look like in, in gathering the data to even begin going to this you know, product together? Yeah, it's a great question. So we went to like, we originally went through the Techstars program. So like immediately all the investors and experienced entrepreneurs that came through that were like, you need nationwide coverage. The first people that we met through Techstars were from Compass and from Remax. Wow. And so we were really excited about what we could build for them. And it was like the VPs of tech there. And so, you know, immediately we knew we had to have nationwide public record data. So right out the gates, we knew that there was no, there were going to be certain geographies where we could collect it on our own, but to supplement a nationwide data set, we knew we had to buy it from someone else. There's probably 15 different providers out there that you can buy it from. Now it's very incestuous. It all kind of comes from CoreLogic, Black Knight, or First American from some weird way. And we've done a lot of analysis on this. And I think there's at a stage where CoreLogic, First American, and Black Knight will be mad that we're in the space. But at the end of the day, it's like we're peanuts to them. They do a billion dollars in sales a quarter. Why do they care about us doing 10 million a year in revenue? Mm. It's just not that big of a deal. Yeah. Like we only did a few million. We're on their radar. But it's like support the innovation. You guys are billion dollar, multi-billion dollar public companies. If you have to pay 50 million or 100 million for a technology, just like if it makes your products better, let's go. But I don't know if they'll support it the whole time. Who knows? Yeah. Well, I want to shift a little bit into talking about growing the estate business. As you mentioned, you guys have been able to double year over year for the last few years here. Um, I want to talk about the, the sales cycle a little bit. I'm curious because, again, you're kind of like pairing together two pieces here. And what's cap what the estate platform is capable of providing takes both knowledge of how to use that data, but also some creativity because it could be applied in ways that we haven't thought of yet. 
Um, so I'm curious, are you identifying prospects and saying, guys, we can amplify your business. We've taken a look at what you do and here's some few ways or businesses more or less coming to you and saying, we have identified this problem and we need what you have in order to solve it. A majority of the leads that come to us stated are from inbound requests and businesses that we may have some targeting out on the internet for, but ideally like I, I use a lot of SEO and a lot of keyword strategy. So that, that's been my main focus always coming from the AdWords world. It always made sense to be a keyword driven website. Mm -hmm. And so like, if you look up property data, API APIs for property data, I think a stated shows up on the first page for any sort of variation of that keyword. And so I'm going to do a live Google search right now. I mean, if you do property data API and a stated doesn't show up on the front page, property I'm going to have data API. Well, there's some good news. Uh, you are the first ad with four extensions. So your AdWords is crushing it and you're the second organic listing uh, on the page. So you're on the front page twice. So yeah, you got that on lock. Boom. Uh, bang, bang, as Anthony Pompliano would say. So <laughs> that, that's been a big strategy for us all along. Always has been. Go after the most targeted people. But getting enterprise sales cycles, which was like kind of the question is cha extremely challenging. Maybe one... The Carfax for homes, I got a customer in less than two minutes, always. Never took me more than two minutes. This is like, I've been working on Walmart for like two years. I think I worked on State Farm for like two years. I think I worked on Obi for a year and a half. I think I That's worked right. if, on- if, if everyone doesn't know here uh, by now, uh, by this episode and when it comes out, I have probably have given myself uh, a shout out multiple times. <laughs> that I work at Obi. Uh, but Obi and Estated are, uh, they work together and uh, Estated is one of those data providers that helps us create and deliver a really great customer experience, streamlining, you know, taking away some of that data entry that customers, they don't have to do anymore. We can, we can automate a lot of that, make it feel seamless to them, so. It's crazy if you think about like not even five years ago, you'd go into an insurance office and they'd give you like a stack of paper and they'd be like, fill out your property information and your information. Like nowadays, if you did that to someone, they'd be like, what the, you can't send it over DocuSign? I have to leave my house? Why? You know, that's the world right. we live in now. And you know, we can help with that. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously for a startup, when you're getting inbound, especially on a complex sales cycle and a product that takes a little bit of handholding to get up and off the ground and to really think through the scenarios to implement, that's a really good thing. Lowers the CAC. It means that you can stay lean, which is what you talked about, like being a 20, 30 something person team able to be really nimble and move about. Um, I am curious though, you know, the last few, you know, two and a half years, and I, I don't like to really make the pandemic center to any conversation, but you know, it's just, it's, it's just changed so much so fast. And it's not just what happened during the pandemic, it's afterwards and how that has adjusted businesses. So I, I'm, you know, I'm wondering, you know, during the, the pandemic, what did you learn from other companies seeking to solve problems and answer questions? And how has that impacted your business moving forward? There's a lot of impacts the last two and a half years have had on the business. Some good, some bad. Learned the, like definitely as a CEO going fully remote, you know, we went fully remote in, I don't know, it would have been like March of 2020. So it's been like two years now. Mm -hmm. That's been a dramatic change. We've definitely saw some turnover. We saw people that just like didn't operate well working from home. And then we also learned to hire globally, which has been like a blessing, I would say. So that was a massive win. And then on the industry side of things, insurance, mortgages, real estate, I think everything accelerated, to be honest. It's like, you know, home prices went up and to the right. More mortgages were given. Interest rates were freaking the lowest they've been ever in the last two and a half years. Uh, more homes were getting insurance policies, more homes were bought and sold in those years. So, but I'd also say like, it's a, it's been a, you know, companies had massive distractions happening in them. We have multiple companies that we like large, you know, household name companies that we have pilots with that got sidetracked multiple times because of whatever happened in the world in the last two and a half years, you know, it was like kind of a headline every month mm -hmm. that was negative most mm -hmm. of the time. So I think we definitely, we managed to grow cause we're such a small company, um, you know, going from zero to a million, a million to 2 million, 2 million to 4 million, four to eight. Like 
we're still at those stages right now where we're not like some massive, you know, I think going from 10 to 20 in the beginning of the pandemic probably would have been a lot scarier from what I've seen with my investors and all of our like kind of, you know, foundry cousins is a lot of companies weren't able to make it out of that series A, series B. You don't have product market fit. You're burning cash. That's a really ugly time to be in. And so for us, we were really lucky. It stated, you know, I really built it from day one, knowing that it was like data has good margins and we're going to be profitable. And so while we were burning a little bit of cash going into the pandemic, I, I really turned it around. But I definitely saw that if you don't have product market fit in uncertainty times around the world, you're going to be screwed. But I think mostly with the pandemic, I took a lot of positives yeah. away from it. I love that we're a global remote company now. We got a lot of really talented people we've added to the team and it's with ease and experienced people that have been very valuable to us, especially in sales, I would say. And then, yeah, you know, it's, I think the real estate and tech industry, it's, it's needed more, right? People spend 10 times more on these little cell phones nowadays. If you think pre-pandemic to where, how much time is spent on a phone today, it's drastically went up mm -hmm. and we have to make user experiences important. It's exactly what OB, OB's up to. Exactly. Uh, another nice shout out for OB. I actually, um, you know, this is this is totally not planned. I, I honestly am not trying to do product placement here. Um, but I, I became an OB customer uh, end of 2020. So I bought a self-storage facility up in Wisconsin. And uh, I went to OB. And uh, Aaron, one of the co-founders, previous TechNest uh, interviewee, uh, you know, made it happen, hooked it up. But when I signed the closing docs, they still sent a mobile notary. And because of the pandemic, we couldn't be indoors. So in Chicago, in frickin' December, on the tailgate of this woman's SUV, and I felt so bad because she was just clearly dying, just like, just shivering uncontrollably. I mean, I couldn't feel my hand signing documents because they required wet signature because it's a small bank in Wisconsin and you know that sort of thing it's just like it was frustrating it was like guys we can do everything else except for this <laughs> I was like come on there's, there's gotta be there's gotta be a better way here and I know there, there there is they just hadn't adopted it yet and I think that the appetite you're not wrong is continuing to accelerate that um I'm, I'm I am interested uh I want to keep moving on here from that you, you Obviously, the growth, some pandemic-related uh, elements in there, you know. But if you had to attribute the, you know, the last year, you know, doubling in size, you know, what do you really look to as the driver of that growth? Uh, obviously, you know, hopefully it's not just the pandemic because you'll need to accelerate continuing on out of that. And how will you continue that growth moving through this year? Estated is built on OKRs. I'd say that's the only reason we've managed to get to where we are today. And so mm. objectives and key results, it's an old Google saying, uh, John Dewar has a book called Measure What Matters. But you know, since 2017, we've been learning OKRs. I'd say it took us till 2019, mid 2019 to actually know wow. what the heck we were doing. Um, they were terrible for the first couple of years, just terrible and painful, right? Like your team hates you, they hate them. You don't <laughs> achieve stuff. Why is this number like this? You change numbers, you change stuff. It's really, really tough. I'm not gonna. No I'm one gonna has lie. never gotten more bent out of shape over semantics than oh, anyone yeah. trying to lead an OKR discussion. Facts. <laughs> That's so true. Semantics and OKRs are the you know the worst. They're like such I'm a guilty. painful conversation guilty. you have to have. Yeah, everyone is. I swear. But pandemic happens. We're we were trying to do quarterly ones. We went to monthly. We went right to monthly. And I was just like, I know you guys are not going to like this, but I'm like, we're doing 30-day check-ins. Every department has OKRs. We're not doing it for people. We're doing it for department. Wow. And um, I made the managers lead all the OKR meetings. And so I really felt like in 2021, that was the most dialed we've ever been. It was like every month we were on the pulse. We use a couple other tools that we've learned from traction and things like that to make sure that we have a scorecard for the business that's updated weekly that all yep. the managers go through and are responsible for. And so while we miss some targets, we miss some targets. It's like, you know, the whole point of OKRs is if you get anything above like 70, 80%, it's like you stretched properly. And if you went 100% all year, you kind of screwed up. It's like you aren't trying hard enough. So yeah. I would really attribute us just to staying focused with that. Yeah. That, that's awesome. And I think that genuinely it might be the first time uh, we've had someone cite 
OKRs on the show here as like a key to growth, but certainly once implemented and, and committing to it can make a difference. If you write down exactly what the objective is and then what results you want, I swear if you do that in your, I've done that in my personal life lately. I started transitioning that to my personal life and it's really crazy what happens. Writing down your goals is a extremely weird thing how it works out, but you'll get significantly closer if you and your management team agree on what you're trying to achieve. This year we have annual ones and we kind of just did our Q1 reflection and you know having that clarity for each department and manager as a ceo really lets me just be like hey this is what i expect from you and i've been getting better at it after five years of it now and um i have yeah like guaranteed that's been one of the most influential things to help us grow awesome i want to move on to you talked a little bit about funding and um i've kind of like a few different questions around this um so you know, you, you said you guys did a small amount, so I'm curious how much you, you raised and if there is a, a future round uh, lined up for a stated. Yeah, we raised $3 million in 2018 as like a seed round um, from Foundry Group and Techstars right after we finished the program. We set a $15 million valuation. Um, we have been offered on the low end, three at 30. On the high end, I've been offered, you know, closer born to 10 10 out of 100. That's the market right now, though. The venture capitalists have more freaking money than they know what to do with, but they're extremely selective on who they invest in now. And so, yes, there's a potential of a stated raising around in the future um, or having some sort of capital or liquidity event. My, as CEO and any other CEO that listens to this will understand, if you have a company that's growing and shows some results, you'll get a VC email every week. And then you add in prop tech and real estate tech, Everyone wants to know what's going on. <laughs> it's true. You know, it is interesting. Um, some of the messages I actually get, uh, I've, I've been getting more and more of, hey, what do you know about this company? What do you about, know about that company? Um, which for me is great. I'm like, well, I haven't interviewed him yet. So let's, let's go ahead and line up that. Yeah, podcast. let me talk to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let me talk to him, you know. And I, I, don't, I don't like to tell any dirty secrets, but it is interesting the amount of appetite and interest uh, in the space. But of course, as these companies, other companies are raising and we're seeing very large uh, rounds being done, um, interviewed, you know, uh, the founder and CEO of Snapped, you know, it's like a, a fraud detection company for tenant screening and they've raised $100 million. Of course, all the businesses that maybe they do business with can grow right along with them. And as a data provider for prop tech, fintech, and sure tech companies, as they grow, their appetite for data grows. So how do you view other companies in the space growing and, and fundraising as part of your strategy for building business? There's a, it's very competitive to get talent right now. I was reading in kind of like a random article the other day that was like, we're kind of in the middle of the great resignation. And I'm not to throw companies under the bus, but like, I love HubSpot. We are massive HubSpot users, have been for years. My expert that I've been working with for two years just quit and my account manager quit all the same week. And I was like, oh. so my two like trusted people at HubSpot just fucked off. Part of my language, I shouldn't swear, but that's okay. Um, you know, I was really, I was really frustrated. I was like, what's going on? And then I was talking to Dan Martell, another mentor of mine, like a SaaS Academy guy. He was like, he's like, we're going through the great resignation. You know, he's like, we had massive turnover in our company to start the year out. And so I think the raising capital one, it's attractive. It's great marketing material. It looks fantastic. There's unlimited amounts of capital. If you have a good idea and some sort of traction in your business right now, mm -hmm. companies I really look up to are like Cherry. I looked up to House Canary for a long time as well. Oh, yeah. I think that they have a lot of brilliant people. I just think that they are kind of owned by the Silicon Valley people who are very bottom line focused. Um, very, very bottom line focused. And so I think that they had some really cool intentions that maybe didn't pan out, but now they found their, their sector and kind of REITs and buying them homes. I think that they're going to be the best at that in the world. And that's the world we're coming to the death of the American dream. But, you know, I think that raising capital right now, if you're growing, if you, if you're a growing company, it's attractive and to get talent, you have to do it. Now you go raise a hundred million dollars at a 10%, you know, 10%, you're at a billion dollar valuation all of a sudden. Selling for a billion dollars is scary. I've seen a bunch of these CEOs. I was talking to the CEO from ClickUp the other day. I've talked to LD at Cherry often. They raised 40, 50 million. 
you have really high bars to hit with that. And I see the panic sometimes that comes with that. So there's there's pros and cons to everything. But if you know if you think you have a solid team and a solid product and product market fit, going and raising fifty to one hundred million dollars is the smart thing to do. I look at Knock, you know, another foundry cousin. They raised four hundred million. They just ended up having to cut half their staff out. After cutting half their staff, they had to raise another two hundred and thirty million just to survive. So it's like there's the downside to venture capital too. Get a little too aggressive and bad things can happen. Yeah. I appreciate those perspectives. Um, having gone through an exit, it's certainly, um, it's pretty stressful, uh, even as an employee who is working to contribute and help that transaction happen. Um, and uh, so even as a, as, a, as a founder of raising some of those numbers you're talking about, um, can be a great strategy to, to grow your own, but also, you know, is it, is it seller beware there at that in that instance? Because because you're selling equity, yeah. So seller beware. Oh yeah, and get <laughs> of some of the hurdles that you you may be encountering. Your your life does not become easier when you raise more venture capital. Like I used to get people used to joke with me. They're like, oh, you're like on like the baby treadmill, and I was like, what what do you even mean? And then I'd see my friend go raise like twenty million, and I'm like, oh my god, your your treadmill just started running. How long do you have to do that for? And like. You know, we got offered. You know, we we got offered a pretty like decent decent amount of money from a very like tier one um, strategic investor, not that long ago, and he's like, "So, are you committed to this for another sixty months?" And I was like, "Oh shit!" I was like, "Why did you have to say that?" I was like, "You want five more years to me?" I was like, "Ooh!" I was like, "Yeah." I'm like, you know, I have like acquisition offers out there too that I'm like are pretty tempting when you tell me that I have to do this for five more years. Um, so you know, it's pros and cons. It's it's yin and yang. It's it's whatever is going to float your as the founder and the management team's boat with it. Sure. But we prop tech right now is sexy. Bottom line, it's sexy. There's more money flowing into yeah. this, and it's only going to get hotter. But like I said, it's going to be. Yeah. Um, like the American dream of being able to afford and buy a house is not going to exist in 2030. Hmm. It's going to be owned by Wall Street. Well, I, I'm a never sell, so I don't know if that that's good. There's, that's there's good. a lot of us. I hope many of us stick around. It's good for me, um, but do, certainly does not help the inventory challenges that we are under. I, w- I want to keep it moving here. Um, and one of the things, you know, this is a big question. Um and so you can take it any which way you like, but why is now the right time for you to be building a stated? I like this one. For me, like it, it just scratches my itch of like, can we gain enough knowledge about the real estate industry to build products and have a difference? Like that's the whole point of building your own business. I think that's also the point of like entrepreneurship at the end of the day. Are you building and working on things that you're happy? Is now the perfect time? I have no idea. I'm competing with Goliath. Like my competitors are publicly traded companies. Like I said, we did like just under 2 million in revenue in 2021. We are not very big. We're like an ant and they're an elephant at this stage. And so is now the right time? I think there's a lot of disruption in the space. I think some of the things we're doing, they're not the most innovative with data, but they're very new and we're very much bringing a new age approach to it. Like, why can't we have community and share and treat our customers like, like actually be there and have support departments and, and help them with their problems. In the old publicly traded data world that didn't exist, it's why companies like Snowflake and things like that have blown up over the years. And so is now the perfect time? I'm not sure. I still think we're a little bit early for people to be trusting pure technology. Like you and I were just saying, you bought a storage unit. I bought a house or I sold a house recently. I had to go to my realtor's office and get the notary to sign it. And you're like, this is archaic. Like, why are we doing this? So it still feels like we're kind of in its infancy of like, we're going to trust technology and smart contracts to do this all for us. And so at the end of the day, when that day does come, I don't think it's today. I don't think it's before 2025, but when it does, and digital notaries and they realize smart contracts are actually 10 times better than having to drive anywhere, do it all digitally. I think that'll be the time where it's like, I get really, really excited. And it doesn't matter if I'm still building a state edit or we're partnered with someone bigger than us. I think I'll still be very, very excited for that day. Cause that'll be innovation. Like that is, and it makes people, it makes the user experience of buying and selling a house way better. Like my friend listed his house the other day, you know, and your realtor shows up with 60 pages of paper and you're like, why do I have to sign this? 
Like, what's happening here? Can you just tell me the three bullet points I need to know? <laughs> and they're like, they tell you 7,000 things because they're a realtor. And you're like, okay. But like, just what's your percentage is what I want to know. And how does it work? And, you know, you just, <laughs> you know, no one's get taught. No one's told that. And you're like, dang, why'd you give me 60 sheets? It's like, you can't list with another yeah. realtor. Well, damn, I didn't read page 42 out of 60. I need to just know the high level stuff. So I, I look forward to the day that there's more transparency in this world. And real estate at this point, I don't think it's going to happen too quickly. But technology allows for it. It's there. Mm. But um, it's, you know, you have to have government change in there. Mm -hmm. You have to have Fannie and Freddie and their big investments and big MLSs, National Association of Realtors. These are very big companies with very strong uh, lobbying power, I would say. Yeah, there's no doubt that there's some big companies um, that have also built some businesses around this that have. You know, they've created moats, whether by technology or being first to the market, you know, have generated some moats around this business. Real estate data, though, can be used beyond real estate. And I think that's one of the most fascinating things about it. It can be used for just about any mm. business. And we talked about a few of the industries that a state is already in. But are there any industries that you haven't moved into yet, but you think that might be on the roadmap somewhere down the line for a state? One of my favorite clients we have is Goodman Manufacturing. They're the largest residential HVAC installer in the U.S. I would love to work more in that industry. I think some of that like very industrial type products, air conditioning, solar. Solar is something I would love to get more involved with. We haven't really tapped it. We have a couple clients, mm-hmm. but it's mostly just used for quoting. I think that that you know, clean energy is something that every house is going to be trying to run on by 2030 or 2040, whatever America decides to invest in there. There's going to be probably trillions of dollars going into it to have houses run on clean energy. So that's an area I would really like to get into. And we haven't really scratched the surface yet. Another just random like niche one that I would love to solve is imagine if you had a Lowe's or a Home Depot or Home Hardware and you just walked in the store and you scanned your you know, home hardware app and it was like, oh, your house, you bought all these light bulbs, you bought this sink, you bought this dishwasher, the warranty's all there, all the, everything's there when you bought it. It's just all digitally on your phone with it, like Lowe's, whatever it might be, wherever you shop. The discounts are built into that. They know the beds and bathrooms in your house. They know all that stuff. And I would love, love to get that one done. Another really cool one is fraud. I think returns, like just Amazon mm. returns. Do you know how many much fraud happens in that industry? Personally, I don't. I know that Walmart's like billions a year um, with Jet.com. Wait, you mean like people returning the wrong product and then still getting the money back? Or people sending empty boxes? I've never even thought of that. Zero percent ever even thought about that being a thing. That's a well, thing. Well, like, so like, yeah, you find out someone ordered a TV or a phone or something and it's like a thousand dollars, you know, you create a box, you send it back and you're like that you want, they want to send it back to a different address or something. Like, can we do an address verification if the order is more than a thousand dollars to confirm that the homeowner matches the order? Like something like that, like that just happens in a millisecond. It's just a verification step. I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. Prefill for shipping addresses. How many websites do you buy from where they still don't do that that well? Like with Shopify and stuff, you prefill your address and you know something happens or an autocorrect. We need to get better at that. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's we've worked on address verification a lot. It's one of the biggest issues in America at this point. I think still USPS really hasn't cracked the code. Um, when you type in an address to Google for autocomplete, most like if you're trying to use the Google autocomplete API for OB, it'll pull up a park. You're like, I don't want that. I, I, these people are trying to look up a storage unit or a specific house. Right. It doesn't so, do well in context. It, it only knows just pure street address. And yeah, yeah, can be can be a ch- bit of a challenge. Yeah. Well, um, we're going to we're going to move into the final two segments of the show here. Josh, you may have heard of these. Uh, the first one is called For the Future. For the Future is a segment where I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. Are you ready to play? Let's go. All right, let's do it. First one, what does the stated look like one year from now? More than likely had a capital event with over 100 new partners, and at least 15 of them will be household names that you probably hear about every week. Awesome. Question number two. This one's going to be a tough one. It's a little bit of a curveball, I suppose. 
Do you think the U.S. could ever or would ever create its own public property database nationwide? And why or why not? I hope that they do. I do believe Obama had some sort of uh, project planned for it that didn't go through. But I hope they do. But I'll say this with I don't believe they ever will. I don't think they have the technical uh, chops to do it, to be honest. I think that most of the software engineers now are going into new places. And I just don't know if the U.S. government's ever going to get to a place where they can find a group of software engineers that they want to hire to go do that project and do it properly. Not to do it better than CoreLogic and Black Knight and First American. That would be like, it would cost billions of dollars. We, you know, we spent over $5 million on it and failed miserably. So, question number three. What's one industry trend you think will continue but you wish would go away? This goes right back into my American dream and buying the white picket fence. I really wish Wall Street wasn't so rich right now and buying so many homes. I read a stat that it was like one in seven homes last year was bought by Wall Street to turn into rentals. I think in 2022, we'll probably be at one in four. I think by 2023, it could go down to one in three. By 2025, it's every other house, if not more than that. And that's how you keep home prices high. Because the average person can't really compete in that world because yeah. these people can just offer cash next day, um, you know, no subjects. And so I get really curious about like, I wish that trend would stop. Like that makes home affordability nearly impossible in a lot of cities in America. And I just don't see that trend ending very well for the average person, which makes me kind of sad. Not to go too far down a rabbit hole, fairly certain it may have been a Redfin report that I was reading, but January of 2022, this year, uh, 33% of purchases were uh, investors. 27% of purchases, though, were independent individual investors. So appetite amongst a small crowd still is pretty high, but it is the investing. Um, and then out uh, from the, the Real Deal in New York just the other day here, and I know this is going to be dated by the time we release this, but still relevant here. Um, the, the quote from the article, largest investors have only deployed about 25% of the $89 billion cumulatively amassed to build or buy new rental homes, according to research firm Zellman and Associates. So the uh, still 75% of $89 billion, which I could pull up the calculator, but that's a lot of billion. Um, that's... Still, you know, a small percentage of homes, but this is being done consistently on a regular basis. So that trend does seem to be picking up steam of more and more of the residential single family uh, dwelling specifically is going institutional and not remaining in the hands of individuals. Yeah, I'll add one more one more little note of a call I had a couple weeks ago with a COO of one of the largest single family homeowner, like rental owners in the United States. They don't, they own a little less than a hundred thousand doors right now, a little less than a hundred thousand. So you can guess, you know, kind of the, they need insurance. <laughs> we can talk about that after this. I won't publicly put them out there, but I was talking to the couple C level people, very, very incredibly intelligent. They deployed 25 billion in capital last year to buy uh, single family residentials. Ooh. It's like 25,000 homes or something. Wow. 25,000 doors. And, yeah, you know, I was like, what's what's your plan? Like, what's next? Like, like 25 bill last year. Do you have 50 billion this year? Like, what's what's the strategy? And he basically looked at me and said, we're going to do another. We're going to spin out a new company and we're going to go for 10 million. And I was like, 10, like 10, 10 million dollars. What are you talking about? He's like, no, 10 million doors. And I sat there and I was like, at first I didn't really like even like, you you, you hear it and you're like, oh yeah, of course, man. Can I give you data for that? Do you want to buy data from us? Because we would love to support you in that mission. We know that we can help you. You know, I went into sales pitch mode. I'm like, you know, sleeping like two days later, trying to go to sleep and it hits me. And I was like, did he really say that? And I like listened to the call again. I was like, they're going to try and buy 10 million homes and manage them. And he like, I know how much capital that company's deployed to buy houses. They're just testing it right now. And I'm like, oh. And they, there's no limit to their money. This is Wall Street. There's no limit. There's trillions of dollars there sitting for them. And so if you think about it, it's like, could they own, you know, a quarter of all the homes in America or 50% of all the homes in America? We know for a fact that a state, there's like 120, 220 some million single family residential homes in the United States. Could they own 50 million of them? I don't know. It's possible. 
but it's like, holy shit, if they have trillions of dollars, they have the models to do this. They have these power buyers that are coming up that are real estate tech, like House Canary, that are like, we can buy you 10,000 homes a month. You're like, holy shit, is this really possible? And I trust those guys. Like, I, I'm like, well, 10 million is their number. They'll probably get it. And it'll be faster than any of us ever imagined. Then more people will do it. Wow. But imagine one company owning 10 million homes. It's mind boggling. This is a topic that I, I know that we'll be touching on uh, on TechNest a little bit more and probably several times throughout the year as we follow this trend here. Not to keep going down. I don't want to keep going down this rabbit hole because we've got to get back to question number four on for right. the future. And that's what's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of tech advances? Notaries. God, get rid of them. Like, can I keep it that short and simple? Keep, go, keep going with that one. Uh, do you mean do you mean wet signature or the process of notarization yeah wet signature potentially even in the process of it what if you had proof of work blockchain stuff where you could have it validated from that you have to have some sort of digital identity which i know is going to be a massive hurdle we have to go through in the future like i live in canada they just gave us digital identities for qr codes to check in if you had a vaccine to go to a restaurant or a grocery store like Australia and New Zealand did that. The US would never pass that, but like at some point a digital identity, you already know you have like an IP address attached to you for the NSA or whatever it might be, or the CIA. Someone has a digital identity wrapped around you, which is how publicly do they use it. And so I think blockchain will eventually allow that. And then we won't need notaries. You wouldn't, you would have a proof of like proof of work or proof of stake that you're, you are who you are. You're signing a smart contract. It's logged on the blockchain fully transparent, immutable. You can't change it. It's there. How much easier is that? DocuSign is like a glimpse of it, but it can go so much further than that. Yeah. Oh. I, I I would love to pull Pat Kinsell in on this discussion. Uh, CEO, founder of Notarize. Um, yeah, I've, I have, I'm fortunate to sit on a yeah. few, uh, what is that app that, Clubhouse, that's what it was, right? The app that we were all on for like, three three months and then and left um <laughs> but, but yeah i mean i i've i've heard a lot of, of his discussions on you know the pains obviously on notarized if you guys want to go back down memory lane several years ago pat Kinsel was an early guest on Technest podcast and a lot of things he said uh he's already done and have come to fruition all right here we're going to move into the last three josh these are questions so that our listeners get to know you better first one is what are you reading I'm reading Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins for the second time right now. And yes. Yeah, great book. Get some. Before that, I just read, I've just been rereading books this year. I read Hard Things About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz, another incredible book. Um, what else have I read this year? Read some Stoicism stuff, Seneca. But yeah, that's been kind of top of the list this year. Very cool. Number two, who are you learning from? Oh, I'm so lucky in this area. I have so many amazing mentors. Um, Dan Martell is probably one of my best business coaches. Trent Kitch here in Kelowna um, had a bunch of really successful exits. Super cool guy. Cole Hatter, one of my best friends. Amazing real estate investor and inspector. Grant Cardone, I've got to spend some time with him. He just went from you know very small internet influencer to multi-billionaire in the last few years. So it's been really fun to see that journey of his um, and know him. Who else? You know, like I don't know Andy Frisella, but I listen to that guy all the time. He fires me up. 75 Hard has been a huge part of my life over the last few years of staying fit, staying mentally strong, having that resilience to deal with whatever the hell is happening in the world. So I'd say that's kind of my list of mentors right now. There's probably It's probably longer, but yeah, yeah. I, I definitely surround myself with some awesome people. You got to be the dumb person in the room as much as you can, right? I think so. Unfortunately, I do work from home and I'm in an office of myself, so. <laughs> I mean, a Zoom room is fine. A Zoom room still, uh, you know, it's not the exact same. A Zoom room is a little bit different, yeah. but, um, you know, you, you can ha it has a lot of the same impacts. I've been very, very fortunate to work with a lot of really smart people the last few years. Uh, and then as well as uh, this podcast, um, you know, it's an unfair advantage that I have that I get to sit with people like yourself and you tell me a lot and distill a lot of hard work and hard lessons. And yes, everyone listening gets get the benefit of that, but I get it firsthand. So, you know, it's unfair, yeah. but I like it. So the podcast is great for that. 
Makes sense. It is. It's perfect. Last one here of our final three. What inspires you? Inspires me. Inspires me. I mean, like, I could just make it really basic and say, like, my family fires me up a lot to keep working on all this stuff. But I'd say, like, inspiring is just... I think, you know, I didn't grow up with a ton of stuff, but now that I've seen the world of wealth and riches and studying real estate and like we were just talking about, I literally talked to some people the other day that want to buy 10 million homes. It's it's crazy. It's like the most mind boggling thing you've ever heard. I'm like, you'll be a multi-trillion dollar company within five years. That's, and it's possible. That's so crazy. Um, I think at this point, it's just the innovation and the growth and, and being part of like a pretty fun community. Like my team inspires me a ton too, man. I am the dumbest person on my team by far. Um, and I love that every single day I get to talk to super smart people, way smarter than me. And I'd also add in that, you know, when COVID happened, we came up with this saying at a stated called, and this is translated in my personal life. It inspires me every day, but happy, healthy humans, man. We just want to be happy, healthy humans. And we all work really hard at that. We all have sweaters and shirts that we wear that say happy, healthy humans. And, you know, I get to work with those type of people and intelligence comes along with it. So that really fires me up, man. I've, I've used, I've heard that saying used a lot more, even through just circles of networks of people I know. And, um, I think that inspires me a lot. You know, I want to keep working on that. Make sure I'm surrounded by happy, healthy humans, work with happy, healthy humans, and, you know, promote that as much as possible. I feel like it's something that we really had that's catching on and it's, it's, uh, it fires me up, gets me going every day. And I still love this stuff, dude. Real estate's crazy. Friggin' my house, a house that I had last year went up 35%. How can you not be in, a little bit inspired by like just this crazy world we live in? It's a never ending cycle, totally. new cycle. And it's just, it's super fun to be a part of. Yeah. Josh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, thank you for at least bringing Rupert the Golden Doodle onto camera before the interview. So Only for a minute. So I got to see the famous Golden Doodle. Um, for those who want to connect with you and learn more about Estated, where do they go and how do they do that? Like Twitter, JG Fraser, Instagram, JG Fraser. People on my email, it's just josh at estated.com. And, you know, I'm on top of that. I'm an inbox zero guy. So I will respond quickly. Oh, we are not the same. And I'll show you what, what I have hundreds of thousands. Of I'll get anxiety if you show me. I swear. <laughs> I look at like half my staff's emails. And I'm like, and you can look at people's phones and they have like, you know, I got a lot of notifications right now, but like, it's like, you know, they have 60 red dots and they all have like I just commas I, in them. You're like, yeah, dude, there's just two types of people in this world. I'm convinced. 292,943. This has been great. We're going to certainly be in touch. But until then, we'll see you later. Well, thanks for listening to the Tech Nest podcast. You can always get future episodes delivered to you directly by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite app store. You can also join the newsletter. Head over to technest.io or finledger.com slash newsletters to get all future episodes, updates, and more sent to you right into your inbox. Last but not least, we appreciate your support. Please go ahead and give us a rating and review in your app store. This helps others discover the podcast and know that it's a great worthy listen. We'll see you next week.